Thank you for listening to the Stonehouse Sermon Series, A Disciple's Songbook. This series focuses on the Psalms of Ascent, songs that God's people would sing on their journey up to Jerusalem. Ascent right now. Oh, we're a couple weeks in here, several weeks in here. Um, and uh, one thing that we've done is in your bulletin or program or whatever you call that little piece of paper that you got this morning, um, there's some questions on there, and those questions kind of help journey through the psalm uh, every week. Uh, would encourage you in participation in city group to drag those with you. Uh, might help you kind of uh, develop a robust conversation with folks in your city group, um, or maybe it'll just help you kind of reflect and uh, read uh, deeper into the psalm and kind of ask yourself questions uh, in the midst of them. This week is the first time uh, the last question on there. Sorry, bro. I'm going to steal it from you because I don't have it memorized. Uh, we've got actually kind of an application piece to this whole thing, just saying express your joy in the Lord in some verbal or tangible way. Trust him no matter what happens that joy lies ahead for you. So at the end of the message, that's going to make a whole lot more sense than it does right now, but it might be an opportunity for us this morning to kind of practice that reality, maybe with your spouse, maybe just on your own, um, maybe in prayer, maybe in song, um, that you would take a moment and actually express your joy to the Lord. Like I said, it'll make a little bit more sense in a minute, but um, in particular, if you're in a season of dryness, if you're in, we're going to talk about that some more too, in, in, in a time of, of difficulty and a hardship, um, that application matter will be that much more rich for your soul. So uh, just consider that as we, as we move ahead here in the psalm. So let's go ahead and read Psalm 126. We're going to jump right in. Um, as we have been over the last few weeks, we continue to read these uh, over and over again, um, kind of because we know these, these, are, these are like song lyrics, right? They're poetic, uh, so that sometimes their meaning isn't immediately apparent. And so as the words kind of continually wash over us, uh, more and more of the, the experience of the psalmist kind of arises out of that, and we see the truth of God beautifully in those things. So we'll read it now, we'll read it at the end, and we'll be reading through it uh, as the message progresses here this morning. So this is Psalm 126, 1 to 6 again. When the Lord restored the fortune, fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. We are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. All right, let's pray, and then we'll dig into this. God, thank you for uh, the immense grace that you've given to us. Um, and God, we, we, we journey uh, throughout extremely diverse days um, in our week between these, uh, these markings of our gathering. Um, Lord, we've, we're thankful uh, for the, the beginnings and the endings of weeks. Um, they're, they're, they're sometimes very needed for us to kind of get a sense that we're, we're turning a page. Um, but God, the, the fact remains that here, even just in this small crew, God, there is a wide diversity of experiences that have brought us to this morning. Some of us are literally holding bags of tears 
ready to drop them on the altar, and others have already come with rejoicing. And then there's every experience in between those things. And God, I'm immensely grateful for the beauty of the Psalms that express for us in poetic terms uh, just the experiences of those who have followed you, uh, the experience of those who know their God yet live in the midst of very trying and difficult times. And I got in the midst of this reality. There's this pervasive theme here we see in this psalm, and we see it all over Scripture. And that is the people of God are marked by joy. And that's insane. Like when we think about the people of God in the Bible and what has happened to them and even what's happened to the people of God in history, it's, it's mind-boggling, Lord, to say that those people are marked with joy. What a profound truth. And God, it's one that we need because so often we are buried underneath dark blankets of sorrows and joy seems to be gone. Lord, if that's our experience in this moment, would you enrich us with this psalm today? God, if that is not our experience, Lord, would you equip us with this psalm today for the days ahead where sorrows and troubles and darkness will be ours? And God, just like we just sang that there's a day (laughs) and it's as sure as the sun rose today and will set tonight, there is a day it is marked in future history upon which the triumphant king of all will return He will set everything wrong right. He will undo every injustice and make it just. He will take every evil and push it away into utter darkness and raise up every good triumphantly once and for all. Every tear will be wiped away. There will be nothing but joy and gladness and rejoicing in the presence of a good and holy God. That day is guaranteed. And on that day, joy unexperienced and inexpressible will be ours because of you. So God, would you fix our eyes on that day because the diversity of experiences that we have with joy being here one day and being absolutely gone the next, that is not something for us to ground our faith in. But the sureness of your promises is something that we can ground our faith in. And so we look to that this morning. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen. So speaking about joy is uh, just something that is incredibly complex because if you've experienced life for any more than five minutes, you understand that joy can be here in exceeding abundance in one moment and gone in the next, right? A phone call can take it just like that, right? One conversation over, right? Comes and seemingly goes in a matter of of no time at all. And what we see in Psalm 126 so beautifully is that the root of this psalmist's joy goes beyond moments and into the very hands of God um, in that he is the one who's ultimately producing joy. And so this psalm, actually, if you kind of look at it, my, my Bible, I hate when this happens, right? So my Bible's got verse one down here in the corner, and then you got to turn to verse two up there. But if your Bible happens to have the whole psalm, or if on your phone you can get the whole psalm into view, um, you can look at it today like a sandwich, because today we have the first two verses that talk about the past. The last two verses talk about the future. And so we have our bread or panini 
or rap. Dang it, that ruins the whole thing, right? So that's kind of the, the bread slices. And then in the middle, we find the present tense, okay? So we have past, future, and sandwiched between them is the present. And that's right here, nicely encapsulated within this psalm. That's one thing that's so beautiful about poetry is it's often framed wonderfully like that. And so in the middle section, I'm going to skip past the beginning quickly and go to the middle section. Verse 4 says, Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. So for us, uh, something more like Phoenix or Tucson uh, would belong in Negev, where Negev is. Uh, The Negev was the southern region of Judea that was very desert-like, somewhat wilderness-ish. Uh, not a whole lot of bumper crops going on down in the Negev. And so, right, th- this, this present experience, right, that's kind of tucked in the middle of the past and, pre- uh, past and future, the present experience of the psalmist here, it's, it's actually a call for help, right? This psalm, even though it doesn't seem like it at the beginning and at the ending of it, it's actually a psalm of lament, it's categorized within the Psalms of Lament. We talked about this week one, like I think more than a third of the Psalms are actually Psalms of Lament. And so this Psalm, this prayer, this song is being sung, is being articulated from a point of great need. Okay, this psalmist is saying, I'm smack dab in the middle of a dry and fruitless desert. Oh God, please help, is the call. Right, so the present experience of the psalmist seems to not have any joy in it, right? It's a desert. It's a dry season. And so and this, was, this is in my heart. This is in my life. This is in your life. Particularly, it might be a part of your experience right now that you may categorize your, your stage of the journey in discipleship as a dry time, right? Like colloquially, ugh, slaughtered that word. That's a term that Christians use to say this is a tough time, right? Like we say, I'm in a desert season. Have you ever heard this phrase? It's kind of a Christianese term. Like I'm in a dry spell. This is a a desert season, right? And it's not necessarily unbiblical to say that. We see in the Psalms, we see in Proverbs, we see elsewhere in um, the the prophets' literature that that, uh, a time of kind of testing and trial and hardness and difficulty is often referred to in poetic terms as a desert. And so it makes sense for us to say that as Christians. Like, yeah, man, this is like a desert time, right? It's a difficult time. It's a dry season. It's a hard moment. And so if that's a, a point for you in this life then, uh, in, in, or in your life in this experience right now where you're at, uh, then this, this psalm, this poem is going to be in particular applicable to you. Uh, in these desert times or these dry seasons, they may be made up of a lot of different things. You know, like just increased difficulty in life. It's just life is hard right now. That might lend us towards saying I'm, I'm in a desert season. Or maybe it's a time of consistent and unrelenting emotional distress, right? Like just worry piled on top of worry piled on top of worry, right? Or, or just relational friction that doesn't seem to be going away, right? Just this kind of unrelenting emotional difficulty, Or perhaps this desert season might be reflected by the appearance of unfruitfulness in Christian maturity, right? I just feel like I'm stagnant might be something we would say. I I don't feel like I'm growing anywhere. I don't feel like anything is happening in my heart. 
or maybe even this sense or this idea that there's, there's a silence from God right now, right? Like that term kind of gets thrown away, thrown around. Like I, I haven't heard from God, right? This idea that the heavens are quiet or they're ironclad and I'm seemingly confused about the direction of my life or what's going on. And so I think using this term, right, talking about a desert time, I don't think it's unbiblical. I don't think we should say, hey, let's never talk like that again. Um, but like always, and we try to do this, if we're going to use kind of Christian terms, we want to understand them and we want to use them correctly. We don't want to just throw them around flippantly, um, like just little cliche answers, but we want to dig in and experience and understand what they're talking about. And so in this case, I don't think we need to just throw away the term, but we need to understand that the Bible does not lead us towards thinking that desert times are an unexpected experience for the Christian. Okay, And I think that might be sometimes how we use the term, that we say this is a desert time as though something's wrong. But there's nothing wrong with the desert. And it is not necessarily, could be, but it is not necessarily a location of your life due to disobedience, stubbornness, or foolishness on your part. It very well might be the very hand of God that has you in a desert. And so to say I'm in a desert is to say I'm not experiencing something abnormal from the Christian journey, from the typical Christian journey, right? James talks about trials. James 1, right towards the opening of his book, verse 2 to 4, it says, Count it all joy, my brothers. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. He's saying there's designs to deserts. Trials have meaning. They aren't accidents. You're not there because you're a bad Christian. You're there because you're there. You're there because the sovereign hand of God has brought you there. And you're there for the amount of time that the sovereign God has determined you will be there. So to say I'm in a desert might be an accurate thing, but to say I'm there accidentally or to say that it's because I've done something wrong or I'm in some kind of trouble would be to misarticulate the biblical view of these kind of dry seasons, right? And what is most certainly not biblical about a dry season is that you need to do something to get out of it, okay? Like, I'm in this moment, and I've just got to find the secret, and then I'll get out, right? Like, there's, there's a lesson in here, and as soon as I learn that lesson, then I'm good, right? Or there's a sin in here that I didn't know about in my own heart that this desert's going to bring about. And just as soon as I repent of that sin, man, I'm jettisoned. I'm good. The oasis will appear, right? That too is an unbiblical view of this desert, of these deserts that we might be going through. First Peter 5, 6, and 7, he says, humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. To humble ourselves under the hand of God is to be in the moments that we're in, experiencing whatever that is, whether it's joy or, or sorrow, whether it's, it's abundance or, or lack, whether it's a desert or, or seeming uh, 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 you know, blooming field, it's to experience that knowing that that's God's hand. 
right? And to humble yourself under it, under God's mighty hand, is to say, God, I'm not here to fight against what you've done. I'm not here to war against it. I'm here to submit to what you've done and to submit it for the time that you've brought it to me, right? He says, for at the proper time, he may exalt you. Who gets to determine what the proper time is? I don't. The author of time determines the proper time, right? And so I think we keep up on ourselves in trying times, additional guilt and additional hardship and additional uh, emotional distress when we look at that time incorrectly. When we say, oh, this must be punishment. Oh, I'm too bad. Oh, I'm not a good Christian. Oh, this is shocking and weird and nobody ever experiences things like this. Or, oh, I've got to get something right to get out of this. Right? We add pressure to the desert experience when we pull these things into them. And they're not biblical Right? They're not biblical ideas. And so we see this psalmist, like so many others, I mean, uh, my goodness, the life of David as reflected in the Psalms is wrought with these desert experiences. Um, and so this desert times, uh, these moments that we might say, man, I'm stuck uh, in the midst of a difficult season. God is at work in them. He's near to us in them. They are not surprising and shocking to him. Uh, and their, their startings and their endings, they're up to him. They're up to him. And that, man, that can be tough, right? Like, yeah, thanks, preacher. That's great. I don't know when I'm getting out. Like, that does something to you when you don't know. It does something to what you look at, to where your faith is, to how you hope. When you don't really know, it changes the experience of the reality that you're going through. And so this psalmist is in the midst of a dry, dry time, and not just him, but like his community. Okay, so There's all sorts of our and we and us language in this psalm. And so this is the psalmist, possibly a leader amongst the people of Israel, saying, ah, we're under it right now. It is hard right now. Right, The Negev and the streams in the Negev, the idea of what the streams in the Negev would do is that it would take a desert land and just explode it into flowers and crops and grasses. It would, it, like, have you ever been near a desert during a rainy season? I was one time, I was in Phoenix, I think it was like February or March, and it was like monsoons. Right? And I'd been to Phoenix like every year for the previous seven years to this point. I'd never seen a raindrop in my entire time in Phoenix. And all of a sudden, we were in the midst of this monsoon. And the day after this monsoon, there was green stuff everywhere. I was like, what? where am I? It was the strangest experience I'd ever seen because I'd been to Phoenix and seen nothing but rocks and sand and gray, right? And then all of a sudden, well, cactuses are green. But then all of a sudden, there was like these grassy spots, these little wildflower places. Like, what? Where am I, right? So this was where the community was. They were in this desert thing hoping for this kind of deluge that would bring about the production of some sort of fruit, right? Some sort of, uh, of crop, so to say. And so in the midst of this experience, what does the psalmist do? The psalmist looks backward. And that's where we start the psalm. In Psalm uh, 126, verse 1, we go to the past, 
That's where the psalmist begins this. So he says, when the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. And so there's, right, like there's, there's an experience of remembering that helps us in the midst of trying times, okay? And now this is not a statement of saying live in the past, okay? That's, that's a whole nother like, no, 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 don't do that. But remembrance is good, right? It's good here. And remembrance is not only good, but it's actually helpful in stirring up current joy. The psalmist says, this is a dry season. Let's look back at what the Lord has done because that will help us here in this time. It will help us to remember what the Lord has done. And so this previous restoration of the fortunes of Zion, there's all sorts of ideas maybe of what this was. Maybe it's when the ark came back to Jerusalem with David and there was a bunch of singing and dancing and finally the presence of God was there. Uh, maybe it was deliverance from particular enemies that came and tried to sack uh, the Israelites and they, they, God gave them deliverance and they came back. Some people even thinks, uh, think it's referring to exile and return from exile after uh, Nebuchadnezzar and so on and so forth. Ezra and Nehemiah lead the, the, the exiles back to Jerusalem and kind of get their home back, so to say. So there's all sorts of historical narratives that this may be referring to. Uh, thankfully, it fits broadly into many of them, if not all of them. And so we can say what's in view here is a moment in time when God had undue uh, and undeserved mercy upon Israel. When God was just abundantly merciful to them in the midst of a difficult time. And so this great mercy that was shown to them, it produces three things. Number one, it produced shock, right? They're like, man, we were like dreamers. <laughs> this was unreal, right? They're, they're blown away. That's one thing that is produced when God restored their fortunes. Another thing that is produced is gladness. God's work on their behalf produced gladness. And then thirdly, it produced an impression on the nations around them. Okay? So one, two, three, we're going to take a look at this shock, this gladness, and then the impression on the nations around them. And so the phrase in verse 1, those um, that we were like those who dream, uh, was just like an interruption to real life for them. God's mercy was this interjection into real life that made them think, oh, this is, this is too good to be true, right? And now listen closely. To be surprised by God's mercy does not happen to those who think they deserve particular things in life. If you live entitled, thinking you deserve goodness constantly, that you deserve utter prosperity always, that you have a right to perfect health, if you live into life with this kind of entitlement, then God's acts of mercy on your life won't shock you. You'll just be like, yeah, I should have got that. I'm pretty bad. I deserve that. See how good I was and God rewarded me, right? But when we have a proper view of life and we go, man, I don't deserve a thing. Like, if you all saw my heart, you'd probably stop coming to church. Like, this dude is just internally jacked. I do not have the right to stand up here with an open Bible and to tell you how God is speaking to us through it. It is an utter gift from God, and it blows my mind that he would do that. 
I'm like, what? How is this possible? God, how can you? Okay, I remember there was that donkey in the Bible and you talked through it. Okay, it makes sense now, God. That's the only thing. I don't, you don't, we, deserving, man. And we have to be careful, right? Because, oh my goodness, are we sold a bill of goods on this? Don't you let anybody talk down. Don't you be disrespectful. Don't you, you know, it's like, careful, right? I don't, I don't deserve any good thing. So when the good mercies of God explode in our lives, our jaws hit the floor, maybe more appropriately our knees do, and we go, wow, wow, Jesus, you are so good to such foolish people. This was their position. They were shocked. The humble heart is blown away at the goodness of God. I don't deserve it, but he gave it. And that's mind-boggling. How in the world does a fool like me deserve any goodness? This shocking arrival of the mercy of God brought about gladness to the people of God. It brought about their joy. And this is an important truth about joy, is that joy in the Bible is a fruit not a duty. Okay? Biblically, joy is a product that is brought about by God. It is not a disposition to work yourself into. Okay? Religion would teach the scripture by saying, are you not joyful? Then be joyful. What? <laughs> right? Religion says if you're having a hard time, just buck up and be joyful. That's what religion says. Right? And I've been in that church. You've been in that church. You've seen those people. Maybe they're in your life today. They're just saying, well, what's wrong with you? Look around. You've got great stuff. Be happy, dang it. Right? And it just completely dismisses the real soul-shaking effects of suffering and difficulty and hardship. It's just like, Come on, it's just, just, it's just dust on the floor. Sweep it up and get rid of it. What's wrong with you? Be joyful, right? That's not what biblical joy is. Biblical joy is a product of God's work in our lives. It's fruit, right? It's second on the list, fruit of the Spirit, love, joy. It's number two. It's born in our hearts through the working of God. Right? And so their joyness was not something they worked up and produced. It is a result of God working and producing for them. Dramatic difference between those two ideas of joy. Right? Just suck it up and go be joyful is not the message of Psalm 126. The message of Psalm 126 is if joy is coming, it will come from God and not you. And when it comes, there will be no mistaken. It was him. It was him. And so they're, they're just, they're joyful, glad that God had worked in them. And for some of us, this is like a real problem because we, we keep fumbling through this effort to produce joy. 
I'm like, man, I keep not being able to produce the joy. I'm like, well, that's because you can't. It's not your job. God will produce the joy. Eugene Peterson, in more eloquent ways than I could ever say it, says, joy is not a requirement of Christian discipleship. It is a consequence. It is produced out of the journey that is following God along the way. That's where the joy comes from. It's produced by God. It's a consequence. It's a result. And so, therefore, we cannot manufacture joy, right? This is evident in our world, in, our, in particular, our country, our culture, right? Because we are the top producers of both entertainment and antidepressants, right? Like, hmm, wait a minute. How, what are we doing wrong, right? Because we're continuing to try to produce our joy through the pursuits of pleasure and entertainment and escape and whatnot, and it's not working, and so consequently, we have to produce the numbing tools to deal with the fact that this stuff's not giving us the joy that we thought, right? And so 110 out of every 1,000 people in our country is using antidepressants. Top on the list. We're number one, folks. We're number one. We're number one. So we cannot make ourselves joyful because joy comes from God. And, but here's the thing, is that this joy is a, a result of his... Oh, I can't do that. We've got to go to number three first. Uh, it was impressed upon the nations around them. So God's mercy shown to this community to bring them joy uh, impacted the watching peoples around Israel, right? This is a glorious reality of joy. Like the joy that God brought to Israel made people go, oh, looky here, right? Like they made exclamations. They said the Lord, and it's really cool. He uses the Lord in here. That's the title of God. So the nations around them who knew the God that they worshiped because they were unapologetic about it, they looked in and said, oh, that God gave you joy. The nations around, and every time you hear in the Old Testament them talk about the nations around them, that means for us, those who aren't following Christ and are in our lives and around us, right? The nations around us, when God brings joy to our lives, it's a moment and an opportunity for them to notice God's goodness to us, right? And it's a moment and opportunity for us to proclaim God's goodness to them, for them to know. And, and, and it's really important in the midst of this communication to say, man, this is this is mercy, this is undeserved favor, this is grace on someone who shouldn't get grace, right? To clarify that for people, like, because often folks outside of, of, of Christianity might look in and see the religion part. They might think, you got that because you did good. And they might even hear that from inside our community. You got that because you did good. So we need to, to, you know, reverse that conversation and help our neighbors and our family and our friends to understand, I, I don't, I, like, not me. Not me. God did something for an undeserved fool. And it, it, is, it made my heart glad. Like, it was so, so good. Amen. And so these opportunities where God brings joy into our lives are an opportunity for pointing to the goodness of God among the nations among those who do not yet know that God is good. And so our joy isn't for us. Our joy is for others to take notice and ultimately to give honor to God. So really, this is crazy. Our joy is for God. 
When God works in our lives to bring us joy, that work returns to him as glory for Jesus. Our joy is for God's glory. That's amazing. Our joy is for the reputation of the Lord among the watching world. This is so beautiful. And so to pursue joy selfishly... (laughs) Remember last week we talked about sawtooth history of Israel? Man, pursue joy for yourself and you are in for one gut-wrenching trip. Ups and downs and ins and outs and inconsistencies and, right? Because joy isn't for you. Joy is for God, right? This is why serving others brings so much joy. This is why seeing something good produced in another person brings us stronger and more lasting joy because that's the way God works is to bring joy to others. Hebrews 12, 2 says of Jesus that he endured the cross because there was a joy ahead for him, right? That joy that was ahead for him was what? Salvation for you and me. It was not a selfish pursuit. Jesus didn't go to the cross because it was going to benefit him. He went to the cross because it benefited me and benefits you. Paul also says in Philippians 2 to complete our joy by having that same mindset that Jesus had. The beginning of his, uh, of his um, declaration about Jesus emptying himself and not considering equality with God a thing to be grasped, but lowered himself and died even on a cross. You know, that whole thing is begun with this, complete my joy by thinking like Jesus thinks by viewing yourself as Jesus viewed himself, by seeing that our joy is not only for us, but it is for others for ultimately the glory of God. And so when their fortunes were restored, they're blown away by God's mercy. It made them, quote, shout for joy, right? Like we're talking touchdown yesterday, scream at the top of your lungs tight, like shout for joy, right? I would say something about the Vikings and the Bucks right now, but never mind. Oops. <laughs> and when that joy came on their hearts and lives, the world around them took notice, and they said their God has been good to them. Right? And then look at verse 3. The psalmist repeats what the nations said. The psalmist says, yeah, God has been good to us. Right? The nations said it first. The nations looked in on the restored fortunes of Zion and said, man, those people are glad. Look what God did for them. And they're like, oh, yeah, man. God has made us joyful again. And then he shifts into present tense there in verse 3. We are, are, we are glad. We are glad. So remember what God did. It produced joy. We didn't deserve it. Other people recognized it. Definitely God's been good to us. We are. So now we're back to the desert, to the Negev, in a hard place, and we're declaring we are glad. Whoa. The remembrance of what God has done, how he's made his name great among the nations, that remembrance changes the view of joy in the desert. So that the person in the midst of this desert says, I'm glad. That's a profound reality to grasp. 
right? And it's something that just like remembering the gospel and coming back again, back and back again to the sacrifice of Jesus over and over again, we need to remember, yes, the Lord has done great things for us. We are glad, right? And the greatest remembrance of past mercy in our lives is to look at the cross. We, as post-resurrection followers of Jesus, have the pinnacle of all history to look back on and to say, God has been good. I am glad. Jesus did die and take all my sins upon himself. The deserved wrath that should have been on me was put on him so that I got favor instead. And through the resurrection, I have a whole new life because of the Spirit of God alive in me. I am glad. The truth of crucifixion and resurrection can burst forth into present joy no matter the desert we're in. That's the power of the cross to remember God's mercy shown to us will ground us into current joy. And so we said the two verses past were, or the, the first two verses were past, the second two verses were future, and here sandwiched in the middle is joy in the present. This joy in the present, joy in the midst of a desert, it has two things about it. It has both a past and a future. Okay, So knowing the joy that can be produced by remembering what's happened also leads us toward a confidence of a future joy that God will still act, right? And here's where we have to be careful because sometimes we're, we lean into this and we say, okay, that means good things have to come to me in this time and in this life. Not necessarily because the ultimate joy, like was in the song that we sang and the prayer that I prayed, is the joy of the return of Christ, Right? That is the most assured guarantee of future joy. And it's more sure than these guys ever had in their minds because they hadn't already seen the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so they did not yet already understand what was fully going to happen. And so we have to ground ourselves not just in the past, but also in a future that says, I know that what is ahead for me is joy. And even in this kind of in-between time of our life, our experiences of joy will be diverse. They might come and go. They might seem to linger for a while. They might seem to be non-existent for long periods of time, right? I mean, read through some of the biographies of some of the first missionaries that went to places like China and Thailand uh, and, and Indonesia and stuff like that. Those people died with nothing, right? After 30 years of just laboring like crazy for the gospel and they saw one person meet Jesus. I mean... Holy moly. That was an unbelievable season of desert, so to say. But they too were guaranteed a joy that is ahead. And so somehow in the midst of all these difficult and trying times, we know that God will bring joy. Verses 5 and 6 says, Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. One of the most important things for us to learn about Christian joy is that it doesn't exclude tears, right? That it, that it isn't instead of hard times. It's in the midst of those things, right? That bad things and joy can exist in the same life. 
And that's the tension of living in this already but not yet world, that we know that all of the goodness that will one day be a part of our existence, it isn't yet here because God has not yet fully consummated that reality with Christ's return. And so there's this commingling of joy and trouble, right? And so to think I'm having a hard time and, and to say that therefore I am exempt from joy is not to think biblically. But to think biblically is to say that biblical joy is in the midst of trial. And often, biblical joy is deepened or even just initially produced through the trial. Right? The, the experience of the joy of the Lord is often deepened through the midst of trial. That's confusing, especially in a modern context that says those two things can't exist together. But it's true. God is at work in the darkest, scariest, most confusing times. And in that, he is working to bring about good. Right? We read Romans 8 a bunch last week that just said, nothing that I'm going through can detach me from God's purposes for me, which are in Christ Jesus. And so true joy in the Lord is not an escape from difficulty. Um, it's not so that we can get away from everything that's hard in order to have joy. That's not what he's talking about in Psalms one, or in Psalm 126. Um, likewise, we can think that you know vacations and entertainment and food, sex, or drink will produce joy in an otherwise joyless life, but that's not what the psalmist is talking about. He's talking about joy in the midst of these trials. If you look at Paul's writing. The book of Philippians is, uh, has a central theme, and that is joy or rejoicing. And Paul wrote that letter from prison. <laughs> That's an important thing to realize. Like the, the concept of rejoice is repeated in Philippians. And, and Paul's sitting on a dirt floor in chains writing the letter. Hardest, one of the hardest times of his life. And he's telling the church, rejoice, rejoice. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. God is at hand. What we see in verse 4 and 5, though, is that these hardships are seed. Right? Look at verse 5. Those who sow in tears. Okay, so there's, there's a concept of, of, of throwing out the seed there. Verse 6, he who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing. Right? So these, these hard times, these, these trials, these these dark desert moments to the psalmist that seed and when you plant seed you hope for and expect a return and the amount of seed or the work in putting in the seed the joy that comes out of that the result of that is abundant and it's glory and it makes all of the planting worth it Right? When you think of the farmer, you think of just all of the unseen work of toiling soil and putting in seed. When you're done with it, you don't see a thing. You see a bunch of dirt. And you're like, that was a lot of work. And it's dirt. Right? Does the farmer give up? No, the farmer lives toward the future of harvest. And so the psalmist expects that the future joy that the Lord will produce will be as a result of the tears that I've sown. 
That's interesting, right? It's a really deep thing to see that God produces joy out of and even with our hardships. We sow it in God and we know that ultimately he will bring about a crop of joy. And so we live in the current situation, whether you're in a desert now or not, right? Like maybe this is immediately applicable or there may be that day coming where you need to tuck this away and be ready and be armed and equipped with this, experience, with this truth so that you know in the experience of hardship that there is both past joy and future joy. And when we can live with that remembrance that God has done good things and because of what he has done, primarily for us what he has done in Jesus, that is what gives us our current joy. And our current joy has within it an expectation of future joy. Whether that's this life or a life to come, we know that God will take all our tears, all our troubles, all our hardships, and produce through them by his amazing hand a harvest of joy, right? And so, God, we submit to this reality. Let's pray. Lord, we, we often are sold a different story in our culture or maybe even our religion has sold us a different story that we have to go get joy or produce it or work it up. But God, our joy is established in the work of your hands. You produce it in us by your activity for us, by your great mercy toward us. And ultimately, for, for us, God, we, we look at Jesus and how he came and how he died and how he rose as just the absolute foundation of our joy, that we know if God did that for us, that we, guarantee, we have an absolute guarantee that he will ultimately produce joy in our hearts and lives, and that that joy will be eternal. It will never pass away. And any joy that we have between now and then is a joy that points us towards that great day. Because we know even current joy is just fleeting. It, there's no guarantee that it'll stay forever, but we know that, it, that it's a pending promise on an ultimate joy that will last forever. And God, I'm thankful that we as a people do have a history of joy. Many of us individually have, have, have wonderful testimonies to tell of you working for us and shocking us with your mercy and bringing great accolades to your own name through your goodness to us. God, we do have that history, not just in what Jesus has done, but in addition to that, so many more gifts that you've given us. We are undeserving of these gifts, but yet you continue to give them to us. And God, we thank you for that. And God, we thank you for future joy. God, we thank you for family and marriages and children and businesses we thank you for our neighbors and our friends coming to know Jesus. God, we thank you for you working in our lives to teach us and train us and to establish us in the righteousness of God. Lord, we thank you for showing us, Lord, what the fruit of a holy life is like and that we will reap benefits from living according to your word. But Lord, we know our ultimate joy will be when we know the end has come and Jesus is making all things right. 
Lord, that is our greatest future hope. And to that we look to knowing that every tear, every pain, every hardship will have been worth it because of that surpassing joy which will be ours in him. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. I skipped over reading Psalm 126 one more time. Here it is. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. Restore our fortunes, O Lord, like streams in the Negev. Those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed for sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Amen.